Good morning, Aletheia Church. How are you guys this morning? Good. It's kind of sad, but I'll take it. So, I, I realize it's 10.30, you know, we're tired, it's rained yesterday evening, so I uh, appreciate you guys being here. I have some good news before we dive into our, our text this morning. Uh, for those of you guys that are a part of the uh, group me on the Aletheia Church group, uh, some of you guys have already seen this, uh, but this past week, one of our um, campus ministry leaders who also calls Aletheia our church home uh, has been, the, over the last several weeks, really in reality since probably uh, the beginning of the semester and, and since the same time we started the One campaign here at Aletheia where we just decided, hey, going into this school year, uh, we're going to ask God uh, to just use us with our influence to save one person, to see one person come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so this past week, um, Holly Cleveland shared with us that she's been going into a sorority, and there was a young lady that accepted Christ this past weekend, so we're going to put her name up here on the cross, and if you guys just want to give God a round of a hand for that, round of applause. Every time God saves somebody, it's glorious, but it's nice to see another name up there on the board, and I think, I think one of the exciting things is we just see God continue to be at work. We'll just see him save more and more people um, because that's what it's all about. It's all about seeing Jesus uh, rescue the lost and bring them to himself. So um, if you've got a Bible uh, or um, if you have your scripture journal, you can go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 5. If this is your first Sunday with us or you have not gotten a scripture journal already, if you'll just raise your hand, we've got a few guys around in the back that would love to give you a scripture journal. Uh, that's our gift to you. Um, on one side, you'll notice the book of Acts, and on the other side, it'll be blank pages so that you can take notes. We would love to have the word of God in your hand as we are reading it together and so that you can take notes. Um, if you don't have an actual Bible, we have Bible as well. In the back, you can stop at our uh, welcome table on your way in and grab one of those. That would be our gift to you as well. We are passionate about the Word of God here, and we want it in your hand. Uh, and so we will spend all of our money on buying more and more Bibles if that's what we need to do. So um, we have been, over the course of the last several months, studying the book of Acts together. That's what we do at Aletheia Church. We study books of the Bible uh, from start to completion. And so I said all the way back in our, in our first sermon that we were entitling our sermon series, Go and Tell. And the reason we were doing that is because of this. The book of Acts, if you, if you look at it, it's the second part of uh, the, the author, Luke's, account of what happened in Jesus' life pre-ascension into heaven and then post-ascension into heaven. And what we see in the book of Acts is, is you have the, the history of the early church. And I said all the way back in that first sermon weeks and weeks ago that, that the book of Acts is the history of what God was doing in those early days to build his church. And, we, and we, what we saw was is that Jesus gives this du direct command to his apostles before he ascends into heaven and stands with the Father, seated at his right hand, right, ruling and reigning now from heaven, that we saw in Acts 1-8, Jesus gives this direct command to us to go and be his witnesses. That is the, the command that God gives. He says that we will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. 
And so everything, right, that we are going to see in the, in the book of Acts is the church's response to this command from Jesus to go and tell the world about him. That's it. And so everything we've been seeing at this, up until this point has just been a continuation of that. And Pastor Daniel did a great job last week recapping what we've seen. So I'm just going to steal his intro from last week, right, on just like the quick uh, introduction, right? But we saw the ascension where Jesus tells us to be his witnesses. Then we see the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers in the upper room where they're empowered by the Holy Spirit to then go be witnesses. So God actually gave them the power to do the work that he had asked them to do. It's the great thing about God. He equips us to do what he asks us to do. Then we see Peter's first sermon where the the apostles and the disciples are empowered to preach to, to others about the glory of Jesus and what he's done. And then the week after that, we saw that a lame beggar was healed. And we, we saw that, that scripture is telling us there that we are empowered to give, to give our time, our talent, our treasure to others, to witness to the glory of Jesus Christ. Then we saw Peter and John were arrested. And we, we looked at that for about three weeks, but we saw that we are empowered to be bold for the sake of Christ and to witness to his glory. And then last week, we saw that between the story of Barnabas and then Ananias and Sapphira, that we are empowered by great grace, that what sustains us in ministry is the grace of God over our lives over and over and over again, continuously reminding ourselves of our need to be forgiven in Christ, reminding ourselves that we are forgiven in Christ, and then continually repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus. That that is the the pattern a believer in Jesus Christ will start on day one, that they will repent and believe, and you will do that your entire life for as long as you are alive. The Christian life is pretty simple in that regard, that you start by, by, you enter the kingdom of heaven by repentance and faith, and you live by repentance and faith throughout your entire life. And so what we're going to see this morning is kind of another transition of what the early church was doing and how the Holy Spirit was empowering them to be witnesses for Jesus, right? And what we're going to see this morning is that the church, and subsequently, because here's what we need to understand. As we read the book of Acts, we need to understand this is our history, This is our story. We are a continuation of what God was doing some 2,000 years ago. And the same faithfulness we see God showed the apostles and the disciples here in the book of Acts is the same thing we can bank on God doing for us. And so as we look at this, we're going to see that the disciples were empowered for true ministry. And so before we look at this, this really long passage in Acts chapter 5, here's what I want to I ask you guys. I want to pose a question to you, and if you're taking notes, you can write the question down or just kind of think through it or jot your notes down to just make sure you're following along. But if I said the word ministry, what is the first thing that pops into your head when I say ministry? If someone said define ministry for me or what is ministry, what is the first thought that comes into your head. It's kind of like if someone asks you, what is a church? Oftentimes, right, that cute little building with a steeple and a cross on the top of it is the first thing that comes into our head. And maybe, right, when I said the word ministry, the first thing that came into your mind was, was, was someone that, that works full-time for a church or for uh, some sort of uh, nonprofit organization, maybe a pastor. Maybe when I say that word ministry, the first thing that pops into your head is a particular organization. Maybe it's 
crew, maybe it's Young Life, maybe it's the, the BCM, Navigators, Compassion International, Samaritan's Purse, or the Salvation Army. Or maybe when I say the word ministry, you think of, of things like actions or uh, missions trips or things that you've been a part of over the course of your life and time as a follower of Jesus. And I think this is one of those interesting moments where if we understand scripture properly, we need to know that that first thing that pops into our mind is more dictated to us by culture and not by the word of God. That when you, when you hear the word ministry, right, if we look into scripture and see what scripture says, here, here's the word ministry for us from scripture. It's the Greek word diakonia, right? And what it means is service or providing relief to others. There are no other parameters given to it. It's not done in a particular place. It's not done by a particular organization. It can be used interchangeably oftentimes to just simply describe coming alongside and helping people that need to be served. But that's all that the word means in scripture. And the term literally means servant. If you, if you said someone is a minister, the, that term is interchangeable with servant. If you look over at Galatians chapter 2, verse 17, here's how I'm going to prove it to you. Here's what Paul says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. And some of you guys are like, where in the world is that coming from? I gave you a random theological um, verse there to prove my point about the word minister, right? That word servant there is the same word for minister, Right? And what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 2 is that Christ is not a minister of sin. He's not serving us so that we can sin. Right? But that's what the word means. He's saying, hey, is Jesus a servant so that we can continue sinning? Right? If, you had, if you grew up in a tradition like I did right, in the Methodist church where you often called your pastor a minister, right? the term literally is supposed to mean is he was there to serve everyone in the congregation. That's what was the original intention of calling a pastor by that term. So therefore, what we're going to see this morning is that true ministry is all about God's people helping others in order to witness to the glory of God. And it's very, very specific because, again, I'm saying I'm talking about true ministry. I'm talking about the type of ministry that the church was doing here in the book of Acts. There are tons of organizations across this country, across this state, in this city, on the college campuses here, that, that they do ministry-type work. But true ministry is going to have some very specific characteristics that we're going to see, and it's always going to be tied to witnessing to Jesus every time. And so here's, here's what I want us to see. Here's four things we're going to see this morning about true ministry. Number one, true ministry exhibits a few common characteristics. So any church or organization that claims to be under the banner of Jesus and making much of him, they'll show about four or five key characteristics that we'll see over and over again. I'll share those with you in just a moment. The second thing we're going to see is that true ministry will likely produce opposition. The third thing that we're going to see is that true ministry is all about making much of Jesus. And then lastly, number four, true ministry is a lifestyle. 
So turn over to to, uh, verse 12 with me in Acts chapter 5. I want to read through these verses really quick. And this this passage is a great glimpse into what professing followers of Jesus should be seeking to do in ministering to their communities. All right, so let me read this again uh, as Kim read it to us earlier. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And so here, here's what I want us to see just kind of in, the, in those, those four or five verses there. Right? What you're getting is a picture of what ministry looked like for the apostles and the disciples. Now, what, what you need to understand is that the apostles and the disciples were not necessarily in full-time ministry at this, at this point in time, planning, planning churches and being employed by the church. You know, they, they had jobs, they had things they were doing, but in the midst of everything that they're doing, here is what ministry looks like for them. And here's some of the characteristics we see consistently from them, okay? Number one, they loved people well. If you, can, if you can read through those verses and not get that, you need to read a little bit more closely, right? Look at the people who are coming to them, the sick, the poor, the afflicted. The disciples openly welcome these outcasts and invite them into community. They love the unlovely. And, this, and, and, and here's why this is such a big deal, church, and this is something I really want you to think long and hard about as you think about, like, what does it look like for me to be doing ministry? What does it look like for me as a follower of Jesus Christ? Where can I grow? One of the defining characteristics of the early church is they loved those that even, that especially the religious didn't love. Right, if you read the Old Testament, there were a lot of like ceremonial rules on, on people being unclean and how to separate them from the, from the community. And oftentimes, if people found themselves in situations where they were ceremonial, ceremonially unclean or they hadn't been born culturally Jewish or whatever it may be, that they often felt like second-class or second-rate citizens. And what we see here is that after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, you have this pocket of people who follow Jesus who start radically doing things differently. They start saying, no, these people are still loved by God, right? And and you might ask yourselves, why, why do they love the unlovely? Why did they go out of their way to help those that didn't have family, to those that didn't have friends, to those that didn't have community? Why would they go out of their way to do that? Because they knew God loved them even when they were unlovely. See, the mark of a believer is someone that was loved by God at our worst, and so we love others the way that God loved us. That's how we're motivated. We're, we are pushed forward by the gospel to love other people well. People ask me sometimes like, hey, Kevin, like if you came across a child molester or a murderer, do you think you would still love them? And I was like, well, I, I can't speak 100% to exactly what I would do in that moment, but I know God would want me to love them well, especially if they were repentant, right? Because God loved me at my worst, and though I was unworthy of his love and being invited into his family, the church, God still chose me anyway. 
and we see that same pattern put on display by the early church. And guess what, guys? It is radically changing things in Jerusalem. Right? You can see like they are gathering a crowd. People are coming around. I love this particular line here uh, in these verses. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Right? So there's the, reli- there's the religious and cultural Jews there that did not join them and, and come to faith in Christ, but they saw the beauty of what was going on amongst these people. And they're like, man, we can't, we can't deny what's going on there though. There's, there's something special happening there. Like there are people that have been outcasts and unloved and had issues for years. And as the people of God rally around them and love them well, there's something beautiful going on there. So that first characteristic that we see amongst the early church in true ministry is that they love people well. The second thing that we see is that there is a consistent proclamation of Jesus. Right? It says that, that believers were being added. And here's something I kind of want to distinguish and differentiate for some of you guys, because I think this is like, I remember just this statement, and I don't know who gets, a, I think it was St. Francis of Assisi who gets uh, quoted with this, and I don't know if he actually said it or not, because I wasn't there to ask him if he said it. Um, but if I was him, I would not want this quote attributed to me. But it's like, speak the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Anybody ever heard that, that phrase before? No, here's the, uh, here's the deal. I get the heart behind that statement, I do, right? There, there should be a lifestyle amongst people who profess to be followers of Jesus. But let me, let me just tell you something. If you wanna be a good neighbor, here's like some things you can do to be a good neighbor and love your neighbors well. Mow your grass, take care of your home, you know, keep, keep, keep up with maintenance, help them, help them at times if they need help. I have never, in doing those things in my neighborhood, you know, like moving my car so that they can get into their driveway easier, taking care of my yard, helping them take care of grass clippings or, or cutting down trees around them. My neighbors have never come to me and been like, hey, you mow your yard a lot, do you love Jesus? Never, never, not once in, in the seven years that I've lived in my home have I had someone come and talk to, to me about that. Do you know why? Because that's not on the forefront of people's thinking. Right? What, the, what the disciples were doing, yes, was radical. They were loving people well. And I would tell you this, I am much more outgoing and have much closer relationships with my neighbors than most of my other neighbors do with one another. Right? Because everyone just comes home, they open the garage door, and then close it again and hide. Right? They're afraid to talk to one another. And, but they'll talk to one another on Facebook. I don't understand it. Right? So here we are though, right? And there's something a little different, but no one's asking about Jesus. There is a, a, a way though that the apostles, right? In, in loving people well and doing the things that they are doing, they're giving all the credit for it to God. People would be like, Wait, why are you guys like inviting the guy with leprosy to come eat with you? Why are you going outside the gates to go love on the people that are ceremonial unclean and to feed the hungry and the lame? Why, why are you doing these things? And every time, Jesus. Jesus radically transformed our lives and because Jesus radically transformed our lives, we wanna see him radically transform other lives and we will not stop declaring to you the excellencies of Jesus Christ. He's the best. You, you can choose whether you believe that or not, but we are here to testify to you, we think he's the best. And there's, there's, this, there's this consistent kind of pattern that I'm seeing just develop in my generation and some of the generations below me that we wanna do a lot of the work of ministry, but we don't wanna attach it to the name of Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that true ministry is not done if you don't attach it to the name of Jesus. Because guys, here's, here, here, let me just say something that might come across a little harsh. 
if you are into education and tutoring and helping people and giving them an education, I think that's something that is wise and good and godly. But if you are not sharing the gospel with them, you are preparing them for an, edu- an excellent education with probably a, a, an upward mobility in life, but you're preparing them for an eternity separated from, hell, separated from God and in hell. If you have made it your life mission to bring medical care and relief to people that need medical care and relief, you are bringing to them a more comfortable life here with an eternity separated from God. Right? Like, there needs to be a reality where you and I look and see the suffering of those around us and relate with it and understand it and empathize and love them well in it and still realize that that is nothing compared to an eternity separated from a sovereign God and creator. The thing that people need most in this world is Jesus. I'm not saying it's the only thing they need, although I will tell you many things, many things you will realize you don't need as much as you thought you did. Right? When you come to faith in Jesus, a lot of things that you feel like you need that are necessities now just don't seem that big of a deal anymore. But there's a reason why the, the disciples are meeting right, common practical needs here, but they're doing that so that they can ultimately share Jesus. Because reconciliation to our creator is the most important thing that they need. All right, so common characteristics that we're seeing in true ministry, right? They're loving people well, that people are trusting Jesus because there's a proclamation of the gospel. Number three, people are being healed. Now, I'm not gonna go into a debate on the gifts of healing this morning. I don't have time for that. Um, Let me me just say, say this. Luke, who appears to be by all accounts in the book of Acts and in the gospel of Luke, a very detailed historian says people got healed. And since I see that the rest of Scripture tends to testify to Scripture, and I've also seen outside of Scripture that, that the Bible has been proven true time and time again by things outside of Scripture, here's what I'm going to choose to believe. People were being healed. Here's the other thing I'll just tell you about Aletheia Church. Right? The elders of this church believe that these gifts are still alive and active today. What exactly that means, there's some nuance. But we believe, we believe that if God wants to heal someone, guess what God's going to do? Heal somebody. Here's how I know. I've seen him do it. There's a guy in our church, had cancer, was told he wasn't going to make it, stage four, right, started having people pray over him. Every time he'd go back to the doctors after his scans and whatever else was going on, we don't, like, we don't understand, it's, like, it's just disappearing, we don't know what's going on, boom, right? Now, sometimes, right, God says yes, right? In the case of that, that gentleman who was in our church who had cancer, God said yes. Sometimes, God says there's not going to be healing here on earth this time around. But the promise of the resurrection still even preaches to us future healing in the throne room of God. Right, that healing is always a part of what God is doing. Fourth thing that we're gonna see, people are being rescued. And I don't just mean that they're being rescued and brought back into the family and fold of God, they are, but it says those who are afflicted with unclean spirits. Here's just what I'll, what I'll say. True ministry sees people that are enslaved in spiritual warfare or in the bondage of sin rescued. True ministry seeks to see people that are addict, addicted to certain sins, that find themselves in patterns of darkness, right? Seeing Jesus liberate and rescue them from that. And that they as the church come alongside them and live that out. They go from being enslaved to saved, 
lost to found, lonely to having family, sick to being healed. That's what true ministry looks like. And this begs the question, like if you were, if you were living in a community and you're like, oh yeah, people that are sick are being healed and people that don't have loving community around them now have a loving community. And people that uh, are enslaved to bondage and sin are, are being rescued and those that are sick are being healed. If you heard a story about that going on somewhere, how many of you guys would be like, I'm against that, can we stop it? Anybody, anybody raising their hand for that? I didn't think so. Right? No one would be like, I, I'm really against people that have diseases not having them anymore. Really against that. Like, we're really against you being around us. Right? If, that, if, that, if, that's your, if that's the way you want to live. Right? If you started a hospital or a service organization, I'm going to feed the hungry, or I'm going to provide medical supplies, or I'm going to provide clean water to a people group that doesn't have it, or I'm going to help those with addictions overcome those addictions and not be addicted anymore, or I'm going to provide community to outcasts or shelters to the homeless. Would anyone oppose that? If that was your sole pitch, you're just like, I'm, here's what I'm going to do. My goal is to provide a small house to every homeless person in the, in the community around Gainesville. I, mean, I, I really think that's a bad idea. Like, no one's going to say that. Yet, if you see the disciples here, this is exactly what they're doing, and they face opposition. Not because of what they're trying to do, though, but because they're seeking to make much of Jesus. And if you seek to attach the name of Jesus to this kind of work, man will oppose it every time. Right? True ministry means that you will face opposition if you try to witness to the glory of Christ. Look at verse 17 with me, and we're going to move through this relatively quickly, but let me just read this really quick. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. All right, so the high priest was the leader of the religious order in the temple in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, he was one of the ones that was behind having Jesus arrested a couple of months earlier. And he is um, jealous and has the apostles arrested. Now, you, know, you could sit here and be like, why, why is he jealous? Like, aren't they doing the things that, that God's people were supposed to be doing? Like, weren't God's people supposed to be loving these people and doing these things? Why would he be upset about this? And I, I would just submit this to you. He is upset because he isn't at the center of attention anymore. He's gone from being the center of the, the Jewish religious world to seeing a new movement rise up to where he's not the center of attention anymore and you don't have to go through him anymore. So I, I just want to give you guys a quick, a quick word. If you desire to serve people and do ministry and love God well, not only should you pray that God would help you in those endeavors. You know, God, help me to, to be a, a person that can heal the sick and bring love and joy into this community. Help me to give the, the homeless upward mobility and a place to sleep. Help me to be able to feed those that don't have a home. Help me to, to provide family and shelter to, to, to widows and orphans. You know, all the things that you might seek to do with, with a heart of compassion, right? You need to also pray fervently for God to protect, protect your soul from a jealous spirit. I, I cannot tell you the number of men and women who were gifted, who were gifts to the church, 
who were gifts to ministries fall because they cared more about serving their own ego and glory than they cared about serving Jesus. The great enemy of true ministry is a love of self. And that, and that is what you see here in this passage, that the high priest is more concerned with whether this group of followers who are claiming Jesus are operating their ministry underneath his rule and dominion than whether it's from God. Guys, if you're doing a ministry, whether you're in campus ministry or you're providing education resources or you're digging wells in Africa for people groups that don't have access to clean water and another organization comes along and starts doing it better than you, rejoice, don't become jealous. We're all just instruments in God's hands. He is the potter, we are the clay. And if God is blessing someone else to make much of his name, rejoice in that. That's why a lot of times, like a lot of you guys, you'll come around to Aletheia for a little while and then you'll come to me and like, you know, Pastor Kevin, I just feel like I haven't gotten really plugged in here. I'm really struggling. And then I found this other community and I'm, at, I'm going to this other church now and I'm plugged into community there and I'm growing and I'm like, yes and amen, go. Do they love Jesus? Yes, right? Do they, do they wanna see you grow and love Jesus more? Yes. Are they telling you to tell other people about Jesus? Yes, okay, go. Go. Because I'm interested in the kingdom of heaven, not Aletheia Church. Don't get me wrong, I love this church. I love what God has called us to do here. I love a lot of you guys here. I love the blood, sweat, and tears that you have poured out to make this a loving community and family, but I care about the kingdom of heaven a lot more. We're not gonna get into heaven one day and like Jesus is gonna be like, okay, all the Aletheia Church people down here, I got you a special neighborhood. It's hooked up. It's not gonna be like that. Right, we're gonna get there, and by the way, you're gonna see some people there that you might not really have liked that much here. Their theology might have been a little off. They might have been a little crazy. It's okay, right? Jesus is in charge, not you, right? And so there's this, there needs to be, right, this place that where we come to a realization that Jesus is the one driving ministry, and it's all about him. And that's the primary problem I see here with the Sadducees, right? They, they are pushing back because of their jealous hearts that sought prominence and praise from the people. That that's being taken away from them as more and more people begin to follow the disciples and to follow Jesus. So I want to pose this question to you. Because I think if you kind of follow, you know, in your heart, if you start thinking about sin, you start thinking about what, what makes me jealous what causes me to covet? Right, if you asked that question and started doing a deep dive, right, you might start seeing God reveal to you some idols in your life. Right, like if you asked yourself the question, what, what reasons would I use to justify my jealousy? Right, like as I was processing through that this week and I'm like, hey, how much am I like the high priest and the Sadducees here? Like how, like can I, can I relate with this at all? And the reality is, is I can like there, are, there are areas in my heart that are still being washed clean and made new by the blood of Jesus. One, one of the primary ones is my own idols of self-righteousness. Right? As the great philosopher Terrell Owens once said, I love me some me. 
And, and you know, I love, I love like everyone else, like, you know, they just bashed him. And I was like, at least he's honest. <laughs> because everyone loves them some, themselves. And my pastor used to joke, like anyone can do evangelism with a complete stranger and people be like, I can't, I don't know what to say. He's like, just ask them questions about themselves. People love talking about themselves. If you don't believe me, go on campus with me sometimes. It takes me two minutes. Like, hey, what, what's your major, right? And the next thing I know, uh, life story. <laughs> I like video games. Oh, cool, what video games? Blah, 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 blah. Oh, cool, right, awesome. Ah, I love art. Tell me about it. Can't, can't say anything else. I have no idea. My wife jokes all the time. She's like, you could probably be on Jeopardy. And then like the art history questions come. She's like, oh, you probably can't be on Jeopardy. You, you don't know anything. I love music. Cool. I like sounds too. Let's talk about those sounds. Right? That's all you need. Right? People love to talk about themselves. Some of you guys are like, oh my God, Kevin did this to me. The first time I ever met him, he asked me 50 questions. He was using me. Yeah, I, I was. I still love you though, right? God does too, right? And so I wanted to get to know you. And you were really good about talking about yourself to me. You proved my point, right? And I love talking about myself too. It's a battle all the time, right? Of this, these idols of self-righteousness, right? One of the primary ones is that, like, I just, I, like, I think I'm a really good dad, and if you want to learn how to be a good dad, come on over to my house. I'd be happy to show you. Right? And then we're somewhere, and I see other people's kids acting really well, and my kids are like the crazy hellraisers in the room. I'm like, oh. and like Jackie can just see me. I'm like squirming. You know, it's like I develop a twitch. She's like, what's wrong with you? I was like, my, the kids. The kids are crazy. Right? And, and you know what we've kind of come to discover in our home about that? is I'm projecting on my kids that their behavior determines my righteousness. How wicked is that for my kids? They suck at it, by the way, too. They're really bad at making me righteous. But I project that on them, right? And then I'm like seeing the other dad and be like, man, that, that guy's a good dad. I should go ask him questions. I'm like, hate that guy. <laughs> He's got the perfect kids, you know? Mine are over here sticking, you know, pennies in light sockets, you know, and burning the house down. Right? It's that jealousy, that critical spirit, that seeking to find righteousness in myself apart from Christ, and it robs us of joy, and it robs us of the ability to do ministry in a way that makes much of Jesus. And you have two options when you start realizing those things, when you start revealing what, what those idols are, right? Because as you see what your sin is, right, as Bob Thum says in the Gospel-Centered Life, right, that it either reveals that you have a small view of how holy God is. So for me, I've reduced following God down to if, if I'm a good dad, God loves me. God's a lot bigger than that. Or I've revealed in myself in those moments of self-righteousness and jealousy that I have a small view of my own sinfulness. Hey, I'm a pretty big sinner, but as long as I'm a good dad, God's cool with it. And the only thing that bridges that gap of jealousy and self-righteousness and corrects it is repentance of sin and faith in Christ's sufficiency for you on the cross. 
Because the only thing that will allow you to stand before a holy God, approved, loved, adopted, forgiven, is the blood of Jesus Christ. As you find your identity in Christ, dying to self and living for him, you see this consistent pattern of your need to repent of sin and trust in Jesus. And that, by the way, is when you start being catalyzed for true ministry. Because you won't care so much about your name being the one of prominence in Jerusalem, you'll care about the name of Jesus being made prominent in, in, the, king, in, in the city of Jerusalem. You won't care so much about your particular campus organization being the biggest one on campus reaching people for Jesus. You'll just care about people being reached for Jesus. You won't care about the name of your organization feeding the homeless. You'll just care about the homeless being fed. That's what true ministry looks like. And so we see here, right, the Sadducees, they're, they're, they're jealous, they're angry, they're mad. I'll just be honest with you, jealous, angry people tend to do stupid things. Right? They arrest the disciples here. They throw them in public prison. Why? Because their goal is to shame. Just a quick note. If you're interested in doing ministry, just prepare to be made fun of, prepare to be shamed, right? Pre- prepare to receive opposition because that's just what people do. It's one of the tools that they use to try to stop ministry from being done. But I love this next piece. Look at verse 19. They're in, they're in jail and look what happens. But then, but, then, but then during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the, te- the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and be- began to teach. I love that. It's just like, okay, like an angel just comes in. It's like, come on, let's go. We're out, right? And so they leave, right? And then you see this beautiful moment of obedience. They go to the temple immediately and at morning time, they're there preaching, right? And who are they preaching? Jesus, because true ministry is all about Jesus. We're going to see that as we continue in verse 21. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the synod of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards were standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Huh, right? Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came to them and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Right? So quick run through, right? Next morning. While they're at the temple, the Sadducees call their meeting, right? This is the one thing that they didn't do for Jesus. There was a rule in, in Jewish law that if you arrested somebody in the evening, they were supposed to stay in prison overnight because you weren't allowed to try them overnight. You had to wait till the morning so that witnesses could show up and be there, right? And they didn't provide that for Jesus. They broke even their own religious rules that they had created for running a religious trial. But here, at least, they were kind enough to the disciples to try to run the process properly. And so they send the guards to bring the apostles to them. The doors are locked. The apostles are gone. Could you imagine right, have been, being that guard, having been standing out there? Like, yeah, we've been standing here all night. Doors were locked. No sign of forced entry or breakout. And the people just aren't there. Uh, I don't know what to tell you, boss. They're gone, <laughs> right? Like, you know, as a guard, you're probably dead at that point, just so you know. And so then they get the report. The Sadducees are confused. 
Like they're trying to like, what, what happened here? And then someone comes in and is like, hey, those guys you guys arrested last night, they're at the temple preaching. Can you, uh, like they got arrested, right? What would you do if you got arrested and then an angel sprung you from jail? Run, right? Go into the next city. They're like a block down the road. What up? Let's talk about Jesus. And so, and so the Sadducees are like, um, all right, not a great exit strategy, but okay, right? So they send the guards down there, but here's where you see, right? By the way, that, that story cracks me up. It reminds me of a story of, like uh, of my wife and I experienced in our first year of marriage. We had this dog, Jack, simultaneously the smartest and dumbest dog God has ever created. So Jack was supposed to be our 30-pound rescue dog who ended up being uh, almost 105 pounds, German Shepherd Doberman mix. And so we were visiting my grandmother who loves dogs and we put him in the backyard and she's got, the, she's got these little yappy dogs that are like more like rats than dogs. Sorry for those of you guys that like small dogs, but they're just like big squirrels. So, so she's got these little dogs back there and our dog is back there. Well, one, um, the little Boston Terrier um, destroyed him. And so we had to bring the little dog in because he was alpha male. And so we brought him inside. And so our dog's in the backyard. We're like, okay, cool. This will be good. We'll give him an opportunity to run around. Like, this will be great, you know? And so like, we're there. We're talking. And then we go in the backyard. And we're like, Jack, Jack, where are you? Nowhere to be found. Gates closed, nothing. Like, What's going on? We come back in. We sit down. We look. He's sitting on the front steps of the house looking inside like, I hear you guys in there. Are you going to let me in? Dude could have been like in 10 neighborhoods away, right? He's at the front door. Dog hopped the fence, right? Alone, but he's just like the Sadducees. Like, dude, you can, you can escape. You're free on the front steps of the house looking in. Like, can I come in, right? So, so anyway, right, as, as we see what the apostles are doing here, right, they're preaching Jesus. They're on their front steps of the temple, and they're silently brought back to the council, right? What you think about it, like, wait a minute, if they thought the apostles were really doing something wrong here, would they have been that worried? But notice, they're afraid of the, uh, of the opinion of the, cr- the crowd and the mob, and so they quietly have them brought back to the council, because what are, what are, their, what are their idols? What are they jealous of? They, they're not worried about protecting the faith. If they were worried about protecting the faith, what would they do? They would denounce the, the apostles on the temple steps. These guys are heretics. They're liars. They're, they're swindling you. Jesus didn't really die from the dead. He really wasn't put on the cross for your sins. Right? They would be there defending that right then and there, but they don't care about that. They care about the control of the people, and so they have them silently brought back because what we see is the real problem in opposition here is not to the service or the things that the people are doing. The real problem is that Jesus is receiving more glory and attention than them. And they don't want to share that glory. They don't care about ministry to the outcasts. They don't care about the poor in spirit or the lowly in spirit. They care about using God to make much of themselves. And so you get to verse 27, and here's what happens. When they had them, and when they had them brought, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Anybody else feel that's like a Harry Potter moment? He who must not be named. 
you know, there's power in the name of Jesus, don't say it. It's like Voldemort. <sighs> Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, right? Here's why they're afraid. They know if people start trusting Jesus, guess who had Jesus killed? These guys. They weren't the only ones, but they were, you know, some of the ringleaders of the process. Like, uh-oh. We may have made a mistake. We need to lie some more and cover it up. Fear and jealousy continues to drive them. Now look at what happens next. As, as Peter, as, excuse me, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Don't you just love Peter's response? Sorry, bro. We're going to listen to God, not you. <laughs> and then proceeds to blame them for what they said that they were going to get blamed for, and also preaches Jesus. Like, hey, we told you not to preach Jesus. Okay, here, let me tell you about Jesus. Peter and the apostles lay out here and refuse to move off the fact that everything they do is motivated by a deep abiding love for Christ. Right, Peter is, is proclaiming, our lives were radically changed by Jesus and we refuse to talk about anything else. And true joy, happiness, and life is only found in him. And we are empowered both by the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to do some crazy stuff, including preaching Jesus to you after you just got done telling me not to preach Jesus. And, here, and here's the fascinating thing. Look, look at how crazy the apostles are. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So the Sadducees are like, this, this is it. We're going to kill these guys right now. It stops here. The easiest thing for us to do is to just kill these guys. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, here's your going away present, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
So the Pharisees are enraged. They're going to kill somebody. God preserving his church and making sure that churches get planted and that the gospel goes forth. By the way, all these guys are eventually going to be killed, just so you know, but not yet, not ready yet. God and his sovereignty protects them by using one of the other religious leaders to stand up and speak truth. Hey, don't make a big deal of this. If this is really of God, then we can't stop it. If it's not of God, then these guys are just gonna fade into obscurity and we don't need to know anything about it. And so the council lets them go after flogging them. God, in, in, in the matter of one chapter of scripture, has saved them twice. He's pulled them out of prison and then he also saves them from death at the hands of the council here. But then look at what they say. They order them again, what? Do not preach Jesus. Notice what they don't say. They don't say, don't go feed the hungry. He doesn't say, don't go heal the sick. He doesn't say, hey, don't go um, rescue those who are in bondage and slavery. None of that's being said. What are they saying? Don't preach Jesus. Because I can tell you, the moment you start serving and loving people, you, you'll be looked at and raised to prominence. But the moment you start talking about Jesus in connection with that, the world's going to try to step on you. And you need to be ready for it. And then what we see, right, as the, as the disciples and the apostles have been arrested, released from prison, taken back to the council, beaten, and then released again, we see the fourth thing in true ministry that, that we should all understand. That true ministry is a lifestyle, not a couple hours or a couple day a week calling. Look at what it says in verse 41. And the apostles are crazy, by the way. This, this story literally blows my mind every time, Right? Then they left the presence of the council. What's that word after that? Rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. What does it say there in verse 42? And every day they what? In the temple and from house to house, they did not cease. Teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Guys, these are lives that are radically transformed by the love of Christ. Radically transformed. I mean, how many of you guys would go through a flogging and then be like, that was awesome. That was awesome. Like some of us are, are afraid of even being called a Christian in a group of non-Christian friends because we'll lose social clout. We're afraid of being known as a Christian in our philosophy class because the philosophy professor might make fun of you. Guys, true ministry, right? If you want to live for Jesus, you want to be here on a Sunday morning singing songs, crying out that Jesus is all in all, that means he's all in all. Right, and we can look at this and we say, okay, wait a minute. Where's the disconnect? Right, 
True ministry is not put into a box of a couple hours a week with a campus ministry or an hour or so a week with your gospel community even or an hour or two in the morning here with us on a Sunday morning or maybe you serve the homeless one day a week or whatever. Ministry is not confined to those areas. That true ministry goes into the workplace. It goes into your neighborhood. It goes into your family uh, relationships. It goes in, into you when you log into your Facebook account. It follows you on Instagram and Twitter. That true ministry doesn't need a 501c3 nonprofit status with the American government. True ministry is a posture of life where you have been so gripped by the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus that you can't help but tell everyone about it. And if a way to help tell somebody about that is to feed them, then that's what you're gonna do. If a way to tell somebody about the love of Christ is to listen to how terrible that life is and everything that they're struggling with, then you're gonna listen to their story and be a friend to them. If the opportunity you need to be able to share the love of Christ with somebody is to go to medical school so you can be a doctor and provide medical care to people that can't take care of themselves and can't afford medical care, then you need to go do that. If it means learning a language that you don't know so that you can witness to those people, you do that. If it means being weird and knocking on your neighbor's door and introducing yourself and inviting them over for dinner, you do that. If it means talking to your coworker and being a friend to them when everyone else hates them because they're the office pariah and hard to get along with, you do that. It's a consistent pattern of emptying yourself so that you can make much of Jesus because he is worthy. Guys, this is, what the, this is the key that the apostles tapped into. This was their model of ministry. It wasn't, the right, it wasn't the correct evangelism uh, model, right? It wasn't the right worship leader, right? It wasn't arguing over which translation of the Greek and Hebrew they should have inside their synagogues. It wasn't arguing over theology. It was true and sincere love for others that was motivated by a true and sincere love for Jesus. The only thing that causes that level of loyalty, being willing to suffer, is the gospel. That's it. There is no love, there is no power, there is no beauty, there is no object on this earth that could compare to that. I mean, think about the gospel for a second, guys. Like, as you're sitting here like, man, like, that's, a, that's a heavy call. You're telling me that if I want to do true ministry, I might even have to be willing to be beaten and flogged for preaching the name of Jesus. And I would say yes. And here's what I would also say to you. Jesus was beaten, flogged, and crucified so you might be reconciled to God. He's not asking you to do anything that he didn't do himself for you. He's not asking you to do anything that he didn't already give up first to reconcile you. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's how you know that God's love is real and true for you. But following Jesus comes with a price. It's either authentic or it isn't. 
right? As Jesus says in Acts 1.8, as, as he's talking to the disciples, he doesn't say, you should go do these things. What does he say? You will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will. And that doesn't earn us God's love. It doesn't earn us God's favor. It doesn't earn us special position like the the high priest of the Sadducees. Because Christ's love comes freely, but it does come with a purpose. You and I get the privilege of witnessing to the glory of the God of the universe and telling everyone else that they can know him as well, that we can suffer for Jesus and be blessed by that. That we can worship with our church family and get a taste of what heaven's gonna be like. That we can empower to endure and do the types of things that we see the apostles doing here in verses 12 through 16 because the Holy Spirit has been given to us. I'm gonna invite the band back up and, and during our time of reflection this morning, here's, here's, what, here's what I wanna ask you guys to do. All right, before you come up and take communion this morning, I want you to just sit there for a few minutes and think about a few things for me. All right, and the first one is this. Jesus gave all. He gave it all to rescue you even in the face of persecution and opposition. If you're like, if, I, if I'm really gonna do true ministry, if I'm really gonna love God, if I'm really gonna witness to the glory of God, like I'm gonna lose social clout. Guys, Jesus left the throne room of heaven to put on human flesh. If that's not surrendering some social clout, I don't know what is. That Jesus bled and died so that the wrath of God the Father might be satisfied and that his perfect righteousness might be given to you. Have you ever fully reflected on the magnitude of that? That depth of love. I want you to reflect on that. If you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to thank him that he would do that for you. That Jesus would love you enough to do that for you, willingly. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I don't know what else I could possibly say to you that would convince you of that. The God of the universe loves you that much. And you can surrender to him today trusting that he gave his life for you so that you might be forgiven and reconciled to God. Then after you reflect on that, here's what I want to ask, I want you, I want you to do. Will you ask God through the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal your idols? God, why, why, why do I not see you worthy of witnessing about to the same degree that the apostles and the disciples did. And by the way, guys, I, the, uh, the apostles and the disciples are not our heroes, right? 
I mean, it, it, is, it is not even like four or five months before we read this story about Peter that he was denying Jesus in front of a little girl. Right? But we are asking Jesus to do a work in our hearts that would lead to a pattern of obedience that would make much of him. And as you ask God to reveal those idols, confess them as sin, and ask for God to forgive you. And then here's what I would invite you to do. After you go through that process, God, whatever my idols are, right, I lay them before you and I ask you to forgive me and I ask you to make me clean and change me and mold me in your image so I might be used by you. And then would you come up and would you take communion? We take communion every week at Aletheia. And as you take communion, would you be reminded of the fact that God's flesh and blood was poured out for you so that you might be forgiven. You can walk back to your seat and you can joyfully worship God because the promises that we have in Christ is that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are accepted, that you are adopted, and that you will be his witnesses. And then you can leave this place this week loving Jesus more, loving others well, and doing true ministry. Whether that's with your one, whether that's with your family, whether that's with your coworkers, whether that's with your neighbors, all seeking together to make much of Jesus. We want more people at Aletheia Church, not because we want more people in here, because we want more people to love Jesus. Because he's worthy. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that even when we are not loyal, you are loyal. Thank you that even when we are not worthy, you make us worthy. Thank you that even though we are unclean, you make us clean. God, thank you that you loved us enough to send your only son to die for us. God, if there's anyone in here this morning that has not fully given their lives to Jesus, and I pray that you would convict them of sin and draw them by repentance and faith to you right now. And that today would be the day that they begin the most important relationship that they could ever begin, which is one with the God of the universe. God, for those of us in here this morning that have known you for days, weeks, months, or even years, will you meet us this morning? Will you convict us of sin? Will you reveal our sinfulness and our idols to us so that we can confess them to you? Repent of them and worship the fact that we're forgiven and share that as a testimony about the love and healing of, that is found in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that this church would be known for one thing, and that is a sincere and honest love of you. And that we would make much of you for all of our days, because you are worthy. God, we love you, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.